Hello and welcome to Let's Talk About Public Code, a show where we invite the members of our community who are actively working with public code. My name is Jan Einali and I'm Codebase Steward at the Foundation for Public Code. And joining me today is Eric Herman, also Codebase Steward and Lead for Quality. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Thank you. And happy to be on again. It's great. Yeah, nice to have you back and nice for me to be back. In the conversation today, we'll have someone on who knows his way around the French open source ecosystem. Yeah, today we're joined by uh, Bastian Gary from the French department Etelab. Let's say hi to him. Welcome, Bastian. Hi. Welcome, nice to have you. Let's get to it. So, Bastian, can you tell us a little bit like what is Etalab? Etalab started 10 years ago around open data. So it was the mission entirely dedicated to promote uh, open data within the administration and public sector and helping other administrations to publish uh, more open data and also connecting with the ecosystem to reuse uh, the data that uh, were published by the administrations. So it started about open data and then it became kind of the center of innovation for digital stuff in the administration. For example, five years ago, Etalab started a new program called Entrepreneurs d'Intérêt Général, Public Interest Entrepreneurs, trying to attract developers, data scientists, designers to work within the administration for 10 months, trying to solve a very dedicated problem. So bringing their experiences from the private sector or as freelancers to the administration to change the methodology, to promote agility and very fast delivery of products, cultural change within the administration. And for the last three years, Etalab is also hosting the efforts toward free software within the administration, trying to use more free software and trying to publish more public code. Excellent. And so what is your role in Etalab and what are the more important things that you feel that you do there in that role? So in Etalab, I'm now responsible for a small team of two people. Uh, this is me and my colleague, uh, Agat, who's in charge of uh, communication and events. And uh, I'm a developer originally, so I'm developing the code.etalab.gov.fr website, a website to list all the source code published by public agencies. And I'm, I'm also in charge of uh, coordinating the efforts of people within the administrations who promote free software. That is, for example, you have uh, the Ministry of Culture. They have people in charge of uh, saying, okay, this free software we use and we recommend to other administrations. And when you take all the central uh, ministries, then you have uh, about 100 people recommending free software to each other. And Etalab is publishing this catalog. This is called the SIL, S-I-L-L dot etalab dot gov dot fr. And I'm also in charge of developing this website and trying to articulate the efforts of uh, these people and to make this catalog more usable and more useful all the administrations. We had a problem with this catalog because some people who were not close to Etalab used it as a whitelist saying, oh, mm. if a free software is not in the catalog, then maybe it means that we are not allowed to use it. Oh. 
that was a problem. So we are now trying to have all the free software that is actually in use in the administration saying, you can use it. The legal framework we have encourages you to use free software. And here is your entry point to find experts, free software experts that can explain you how uh, MariaDB is used in this administration, how Nextcloud is used in this other administration and so on. So these are the main two products that we are in charge in. And the third part of our efforts is about connecting people through the Blue Hats brand. That is anyone interested in free software used by the administration or free software produced by the administration is welcome to join the Blue Hats community and to follow the news and to follow the progress that we are making. So I'd like to follow up on that a little bit. So at FOSDEM, I guess it was the last time we were there in person, I first saw people running around with the blue hats on. Maybe you can tell a little bit more about blue hats and, and the community that is around that. Yeah, it started more than three years ago now. It was in 2018. I was just uh, being recruited, it was two weeks after I joined uh, the DINUM and Etalab. And I had a colleague and we were just brainstorming on how to connect people in all these agencies that are internally pushing for free software, usually high-skilled people who want to share about stuff, but they don't know how to find themselves. So we had the Paris Open Source Summit in December 2018, and we thought, okay, what about being there representing Etalab and trying to gather these people and to give them blue hats uh, so that they can organize stuff by themselves, but they can rebrand them as blue hats events everywhere. It didn't take off as we hoped, meaning that everyone has his uh, own agenda and so on. But we are still here and we organized many events. We were at the Paris Open Source Summit in 2019. And we organized a very nice open source sprint in January 2019 too, uh, gathering more than 50 persons working on 10 open source projects from the administration and opening the doors to the ecosystem outside, citizens interested in free software. And it was very useful. We had feedback. The people outside, they usually don't understand, for example, why does the administration develop something new, even if it's free software, instead of reusing some open source software that is out there. We have these discussions with uh, companies that publish this software and say, hey, you should, instead of reinventing the wheel, you know, being victim of the not invented here syndrome, you should use it and contribute to it and put the money where good stuff is already existing and that make contributions and so on. So sometimes they are right and it's just a lack of knowledge about these solutions. Sometimes the timing is not good. Sometimes the administration cannot afford to anticipate the coordination costs because you have to coordinate upstream with the software and the uncertainty has a cost. So all these discussions were possible because of Blue Hats and open events of that kind. Nice. Thank you. 
I think we have a follow-up question in the chat from when you mentioned SIL. And it's uh, does the SIL also enable civil servants to get in touch with the other users of the same project? Yes. Yes, thank you, Boris. Uh, yes, that's uh, that's exactly the purpose. You have a contact button. It's very crude right now. We don't have backend, actually. It's just some uh, front-end stuff and uh, based on a CSV <laughs> list uh, document. And we're also tapping into Wikidata. Oh. So for example, when someone wants to reference a new solution, we take just a few data like the license, the name of the project, and the minimal version they recommend. Sometimes we also have a maximal version. In the case of Audacity, for example, where you had this problem with the recent version. So we say Audacity is from <laughs> this to this and beyond, you're on your own. So we encourage them to have a Wikidata entity describing all the stuff. So GIMP is a good example. The entity is very rich linking to the source code, to the documentation page, and so on and so on. And sometimes on the website, if you see that uh, a software is more documented, it's because of this, because we use data from Wikidata. And we have this very crude uh, contact button. I'm centralizing for now the, the, the contact requests, and I'm forwarding to the people on the mailing list. And the main tool we have is a, a mailing list so far. But we plan to uh, let the seal evolve in many directions. The first one being about having a proper backend, allowing people to contact each other and outside requests to come in and, and find the right person more easily. Another big evolution would be to distinguish clearly between what is a tool for building solution, a library, a framework, all that stuff, and what is a tool that you can use already for a solution or for a specific need that you have in your agency? Because that's the feedback that we have. Now it's a kind of a flat list and we need to categorize and organize stuff and have a big, big button like submit, describe the use of the software you have. And we also are trying, thanks to my new colleague being here for, for the last month, we are working on drafts for one pages for each solution, oh. meaning, okay, MariaDB, where is it used, by what administration, what for, how long has it been, and so on and so on. And maybe also a list of companies providing support and development for these softwares, because that's also a key element that we need. Sounds really useful. And also, I, I would love to come back to you later after this show and talk more about Wikidata, because that's my big hobby. So but we, we don't <laughs> going to dive in deep here about it. Instead, I want to take this in a little bit of another direction. When we did this research, we noticed that you have been studying philosophy. And is that something that you actually can apply in your work right now? I don't know. <laughs> um... But for sure, the fact that I'm here right now at Ethalab is the result of uh, years of thinking about stuff, meaning I was 20, 20 years old when I discovered uh, both philosophy and GNU Linux. And my impression was that truth was the most precious thing we could have, and that knowledge is going to be shaped by the internet and the way you get it. 
And if knowledge is shaped by all these new communication means, you better have free software ideology spread into all these actors. I think what we see with the, all this fake news problem and the net neutrality problems and all this, this environment that is a bit stressful kind of proves the point of, well, it's important to think of this network as a source of truth and to link free software and truth. I mean, that's exactly the same link that you have in research. When you're a researcher, you want to prove that you're right and you want to let others check the proof that you provide and then you share your source code. And maybe they can even enhance your proof and modify the source code and, and give you a better proof <laughs> or just prove that you're wrong. So software is knowledge. Once you say that there is this connection, this very intimate connection that not many people understand. I mean, for the usual people, software is, I don't know, just uh, inward machinery and it's something obscure. And But software is knowledge. It's just this. Like when you share software, you share knowledge. And if you don't have access to software, then someone is preventing you to understand things. So I think the root is here. I wanted to understand things. I quickly understood that my, my brain was limited and I could not understand all the many things I wanted to. But um, there is also one book that has been very critical for me and that motivated my will to work with the public administration. Because from 2000 until 2012, I would say, I was like the usual free software activist, thinking this is a revolution. I want to be part of it. And it's very cool because I can stay in pyjama at home and <laughs> do the revolution. There is this feeling like I do something critical. It's very important. I'm, I can you know, get angry with people if they don't understand or don't adhere to this movement. And, and what's nice is that I, I, I can see what's uh, my share of this revolution, my individual share. And then I read this book by Fred Turner from counterculture to cyberculture. He explains how this mythology of individual activists is the result to simplify a fork between political institutions and the digital revolutions and the digital stuff. And we are paying the cost of this fork because we today, you better know than me that you have, you have to explain to all these political people what it means, what is a software, what is a client and server, what is free software and so on and so on. So in his book, Fred Turner makes a very good claim on why it is so important to work directly with the institutions to make a structural change. So that's my hope. My hope is that public services could be a key actor in this structural change that we need to make. And that is also, I mean, individuals, of course, they contribute to this to the revolution by bringing in these cultural differences. But uh, yeah, you need to work the best at the heart of it. <laughs> 
all of this really resonates with me. I, I've been a developer for a couple of decades now. Um, <laughs> and so really, really has a lot of parallels for me. One of the things that I noticed was that civil servants have an overlap with free software developers. The overlap that I noticed when I first started working with civil servants was the shared notion of contributing for the good of not just themselves, but for others. And that's something that I see reflected in civil servants. And so my question to you is, are you seeing that there are developers and other tech profiles, sysadmin designers that are interested in working for government more? And whether there are, what are the things that a government organization offers them or needs to advertise to them to attract the other developers and other tech talent to be a part of this change that you're describing? Hmm. Yeah, as a forward, I'm not sure I see the, the, the I see the connection that you're mentioning about civil servants and open source or free software developers being willing to contribute to the public interest. That's, of course, part of the mission, but you also have selfish interests everywhere. Sure. Like you can be a free software developer just for your CV or whatever, or for your career. And that's fine. I mean, I think the movement is nurtured by this good combination of uh, mm -hmm. selfish interest and, and altruistic ones to make it easier and sexy to contribute to free software made by the administration. Mm -hmm. We first need to take the list of the 8,000 repositories that we list on code.etalab.gov.fr. This list, we wanted to make a point about, yes, we do publish software and actually we do publish a lot. But now we have to work on what repository contains a contributing file. Right. What repository is really maintained by someone? What repository is a key element of another repository or a key element for outside project? What libraries are we publishing that are used by other companies and ordinary citizens, I would say? So that's a work uh, that we do undertake right now from quantity to quality to, to, to say so. And um, I would say that 90% of the project are here for transparency. For example, you need to be transparent about the COVID attestation that we had. So you want to check that there is no personal data that is shared with the ministry. Okay, the repository is here and that's deployed on your smartphone and you can check. And maybe 10 or 5% of the project accept contributions. Right. Because what is needed here is to have the managers being aware that contribution, that incoming contributions have a cost. I've been contributing to different free software, I've been maintaining free software, so I know how difficult it could be to deal with the, you know, the flow of incoming requests, especially because a request could be anything support, new feature, whatever. And you need to have some spare time to work on this. So what I would love would have to, we already have something interesting in France that is civil servants have a a priori right to contribute to any kind of free software out there. Would it be the Linux kernel, MariaDB and whatever. And we do have some civil servants contributing to outside free software. I do, some other people do. And, um, but we need to make it more systematic, 
we need to extend it to other digital free commons like Wikidata. And I hope we're going to do this uh, very soon. So you told us a little bit about some of the challenges. Are these the biggest challenges that you have when trying to get the public agencies maintain or enhance whatever IT infrastructure they are using that is open source software? No, I would say the, the main challenge is to, for me, at least the way I see it, is to understand the agencies and to understand their own constraints and to empower them to build their own open source program office, their own internal team of people in charge. That's, for me, that's the only way we can make a big step forward is that by having internal teams dedicated to this topic and by modestly, because even if we are, even if Etalab is a interministerial department, we don't hold the truth for everything, especially in free software. So for example, we worked with a, an agency that is producing software for the universities. And that was really, really fascinating because it's like multi-millions project. They use to build the software paid by the universities and then to sell back the software. They are slowly migrating from a, a on-premise installation a model to a software as a service. And by doing this migration, and they thought, okay, what about sharing or source code? Now that we don't depend on sending binary files that universities can deploy, we can share part of the software, maybe even all of the software. So I went there with many ideas on what I should say and how I could uh, give the best advice to them and so on. So I stop immediately and step back and say, okay, I, I think I'm going to spend three months just questioning them and trying to understand how big are the teams? What part of the software are they developing internally with, you know, internal skills? What part are they paying to a company? And what are the biggest challenges? Is it political? Is it to have to go from the big boss, the director there? Or is it because the internal teams are so used to work on the closed GitLab instance that they have that they don't want to open it and so on and so on? So my lesson from this experience from last year is that the closer the OSPO, the Open Source Program Office, is from the teams, from you know the technical people, the better it is to open more source code and to share the source code usefully with others. For example, they decided that they need to prioritize because they are in working with limited means. And the priority is going to be on small libraries that have a reduced potential for at least one other administration. If they don't identify such an administration, they deprioritize it. And that, that's good because it means that the few libraries that they will provide are kind of sure it will be reused from day one and that they will be part of an ecosystem and that the one developing this library will have to someone else as a user. Because I think we all have this feeling when we contribute to free software, we go there because we have users. And the administration sometimes when uh, it publishes a source code, it doesn't have any user so far. And it, could be kind of depressing if you stay in this situation for too long. 
Yeah, so you mentioned the difference between actually collaborating in software in the open and having a, like for instance, a private GitLab instance where maybe it's officially licensed with a freedom source software license like GPL or UPL or similar, but uh, but it's not really a collaborative effort. And you mentioned looking at several different instances and trying to get a sense of that. So it sounds to me like you're noticing that there's a sort of maturity spectrum there in terms of being familiar with the how to work collaboratively in the open and such. And so what is your sense? Were you surprised by the proportion that were very mature in this notion of open per default and really working collaboratively? Or were you surprised that that was like a really small portion that understood it? Or did things turn out pretty much as you expected? Uh, how would you characterize that? Well, my big surprise was that when I arrived at Etalab three years ago, um, we work with another department who's responsible for this agile products in the administration. And all the products are open source. Mm-hmm. Uh, they use a, an open source license. And they were using the GNU Affero license for every product. Okay. So I thought, wow, this is the paradise for any you know orthodox free software activists around here. And then I discussed with them and I was like, how are you having contributions? Well, they say, well, no, we don't really have time. If a citizen comes and, and contributes, that that's fine because that's why we are open by default. And then I said, well, why do you use the Afero license? Oh, because that's for the community. So there was this discrepancy that we don't have time to build a community, but contributions are welcome. And the Afero, we use it because it's it's a community license. So we had many discussions and now they've changed. I mean, the license is not a magic spell that create, uh, <laughs> creates the community. And now they've moved from ha- using this, this license systematically from using permissive license by default and for sure for libraries because it could be easier to get contributions and to get users. You don't get contributions unless you have users. So first thing you need is users. And then the Afero license is always welcome, but when you identify a risk of the public interest being endangered by a permissive license, which is exactly the same reasoning with this agency I've mentioned. They sell software to universities. So anything that is not critical to their business, because that's really a business, is under a permissive license. And if there is something very critical for which they expect any other instance to potentially be private actor that could endanger the public interest, then they would use the Afero license. I don't remember what was the question, and I, I drifted too far. But that was my surprise. So open by default or code in the open does not equal we welcome contributions and quite on the contrary in this uh, department, even though they are very in the spirit of sharing and receiving contributions, but they don't look for it. So you don't get contributions unless you have users and until you are looking for them. And that's okay. I mean, and put the work in building a community is definitely work. Yeah. But that also triggers the question then how do you see collaboration being made between vendors and civic tech activists and the agencies? Is there anything going on? 
Yeah, sure. We have, for example, vendors that have been working for more than 15 years with the cities and uh, small local agencies. And what I see is that when these vendors know free software very well, then they are building communities made of the various clients. They do or do not define a very explicit governance. Sometimes they don't need to define it. They just have a club of clients and the club decides for the next features. And all this is uh, made with a very pragmatical approach. So this company explains what is free software and the clients could see the public agencies, they see the benefits immediately because they see that the collaboration work is useful even for them as uh, individual agencies. So that's has been done uh, at least at the local level for very long, thanks to associations like uh, Adulact that you know already, and thanks to very mature clients. We have this chance to have very mature companies in France that knows how to organize collaboration within clients and to and and to do that. And talking back about these various maturity levels that Eric mentioned a bit earlier, it's very difficult to assess the maturity level, especially because I don't think it's one scale. Right. I mean, the maturity level of the startup, the state startup that I department that I mentioned on code in the open is 100%. On collaboration, it's more difficult. On reusing existing free software solutions that could be useful is maybe not that great. The maturity level of collaborating from the agency I've mentioned working with the universities is very high because they employ many people and they have this internal culture of inner source and collaboration inside. So they are ready to work with other companies and other agencies, but their maturity level of code in the open is very low. Right. And I'm very glad that we see this movement with the OW2 and other actors and, and the Foundation for Public Code and uh, the OSPO Alliance and all this brainstorming, ongoing reflections on what is the maturity level, what, what are the various scales that you want to use to make progress. And the administration is, doesn't have, at least I don't have, the maturity level to set standards for other administrations. I think we are in the phase of observing, uh, understanding, and making progress towards maybe reusing all the tools that you people are sharpening for us to use later on. So that leads me to ask you a question, and that is that uh, you're obviously talking about still learning, and France has been working with open source for a very long time. It's been doing, uh, it obviously has the, the mandate to do so and such, but not all countries understand free software and, and how to even get started collaborating in the open. And some of the things that you're seeing is difficult locally probably give you some insight into what would help another country that is earlier in the process of embarking on learning how to do collaborative development in the open, building public code. And, and what are the things that you would recommend they pay close attention to, especially early in the process? And what are some of the pitfalls that they can see a little bit better learning from countries that have been doing it longer? Hmm. Yeah, I think there's always this uh, tension between buzzwords that attract the attention of people, like sharing knowledge, 
open anything open is is a buzzword and comments everyone is talking about comments and being common is good and so on so there's this tension between these buzzwords we need these words because politicians need to sell something very attractive and the reality that is everything is more complicated uh, at the ground level and i do believe in case studies and I hope that the main output that we can have in three or five years from Etalab about free software is good case studies. Other case studies for the administration and for other countries for sure. And I'm glad that we have the European Commission, you know, pinging us to say, hey, what is the real use of CHAP? What is CHAP? How does it work? How can we discuss about CHAP for all the countries. Is it reusable for all the countries? What was the deal? What was the public market? What was wrong? What? Okay, and that's, that's I think, is very useful because that's the answer to abstract ideological discourse that, that is the danger of buzzwords. So if you, you can have buzzwords as long as you have uh, tangible case studies and things to show. The Canadian friends, the Digital Canadian Department has a an event, internal event called uh, "Show the Thing," <laughs> and that that's cool. I mean, they take uh, half an hour, and someone shows the thing, the real thing. So I would like to show the thing to what works and what doesn't work. Another word that always comes too early in the discussions is governance. To me, I mean, do you have at least one of the people to collaborate with. Okay, that's just collaboration. You don't need a governance. So I do believe we have a tendency to organize premature uh, governance rules. Sometimes it's needed. I don't say it's, uh, you, we are serious people. We want to know where we go and, and so on and so on. But you don't have comments until you have many actors and an explicit governance. You don't have, you don't need governance until you have many contributors and so on and so on. We can do a lot before talking about two theoretical stuff. For sure. And we see that as well. I think that's sort of like it's in the nature of a public organization to want to have some order and the rules that you're abiding by. So I think that's why it comes up so early. Oh, we need some governance. That's I think that's natural. Hmm. Uh, but I was also thinking about Jomartin in our last episode. We had OpenFisca on, which is a code base used in France. Is there another code base or community that you would like to highlight to show for the world? Yeah, we have the QGIS community. I don't know the tool myself. It's a geomatical tool, but it was financed by the public sector a long time ago. It's still a thriving project. So that would be the one. And we also have Geotrek that is used by the national natural parks out there. And it's a very nice story about uh, one park designing this software because they wanted to advertise, to, to build a database about the various path that people could use within the park. Mm. And then another, another one coming in and say, oh, that's nice. Can we use your software? Well, you can use it and you can contribute to it and, and so on and so on. And you today you have 22 parks using the same software that it's that is a real commons and the governance is um collective brainstorming and prioritizing about next features and you have uh camille uh, monchico who is uh the real lead and he's very 
community person. That's also what's interesting is that you don't need to be a tech person to have the community lead. And sometimes within the administration, you have just passionate people who are just community leaders that can bring companies, agencies together to make something useful. So in the case of this, are the developers that are working on this, are they state employees or are they vendors that are brought in to do the work? How is it financed, I guess, is really the question I'm asking. How is the development work financed? Yeah, that's a very good question. So it's financed by uh, the uh, by public money. Yeah. And they started with a, a vendor. The vendor played the role of explaining open source and explaining free software and so on and so on. Until one of the parks, the, the one who initiated all this project, Parc National des Écrins, started to look for interns working on the source code and maybe pay someone. So now I think you would need to double check with the Camille Moshiko, but I think they have internal competencies and people paid on the project, at least a few ones. And also the vendor is not alone anymore because other parks could bring new features developed by other vendors. So it was an organic process of understanding how free software works, how to build a community and how not to depend on just one vendor. And that's why uh, it's a very uh, nice story. Right. Yeah, that sounds really beautiful. One question that we ask to all people coming on here, and also a little bit why you're on here, is who would you like to see on in a future episode that we would talk to? I would like to see a girl. And I'm thinking of, uh, about uh, different ones. One is uh, Annalivia Gomar. She's a developer, Pythonista originally, and she's been working uh, next to me at um, Beta Goof, so the unity in charge of developing startups, state startups. She's been active in the Girls in Python, and she's now in charge of CHAP. CHAP used to be dealt with uh, in a separate uh, entity at the DINUM, and now it became a state startup. So even if it's obscure for you and everyone, she will explain that. So I would recommend uh, talking with her. I think that's a striking example of, uh, of uh, patient uh, for the public interest and for community stuff useful for, for everyone. She sets a very good example about all that. Sounds lovely. I didn't ask her for permission, and I will just right <laughs> after this, <laughs> this show. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. All right. This has been a very nice chat. I think we could go on for hours, really, but I think this is a nice time to wrap it up. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I would just say one word about this Blue Hat stuff. Yeah, yeah. please. But my, my Blue Hats is uh, around here. There is something about mischievous about wearing a hat. Mm. And just a small anecdote is that when we wanted to launch this Blue Hats project with Laurent Joubert, my colleague, uh, three years ago, we asked the permission to Microsoft because they had the Blue Hats community. We also asked the permission to Red Hat, of course. And they didn't answer us for one week. So we were like, oh, is it good? Is it bad? And after, in fact, it was just before IBM 
bought red hat. Oh my goodness, yes. So <laughs> Big Blue buys, buys the red hat, yes. <laughs> exactly, Big Blue buys the red hat. So we had this, you know, like in any Marvel uh, story, you have this myth of the origin. And I think what I like about free software is that even if it's within the administration, even if, I hope in 10 years, it will be part of the culture there the hat is here to remind everyone that it's about freedom. So there is always a bit about mischievous people that you don't expect. They will propose things you don't want in your administration. They will shake uh, your uh, certitudes and they will bring something new. That's also what why we have this hat. That's great. That's a great story. <laughs> yeah. Now I want a hat. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have some. Come in Paris and uh, I, I'll come in. Hold on. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been it's been excellent. Thank you, Bastian. Yeah, thank you, Bastian. Thank you both. See you around. And before finishing up the livecast, we would like to remind you that you can make sure that you get it down to whatever place you're listening to by subscribing on podcast.publiccode.net. Right. And then, of course, there's also the YouTube channel you can subscribe to, and you can also see the past episodes there as well. Yeah, and we will be back in about a month. Yeah. Thank you.